But uh, the question that's been submitted uh, for this evening is, how was salvation extended to non-Jews in the Old Testament? And, um, of course, we were well aware of the fact, as we read the Old Testament, that there uh, was the Mosaic Law given to the Jews, and they were called Jews, uh, mainly because of the fact that they came from the region of Judea. They were first called Hebrews, and the very first person to be called a Hebrew was Abraham. And once Abraham was called a Hebrew, and especially after the law of Moses was institute, instituted, there was, of course, a division in the world today. Uh, you were either a Jew or you were a Gentile. And the Bible speaks a whole lot about what was required of, of those who were living under uh, the Mosaic law, but the Bible really doesn't say a whole lot about what happened with the rest of the world. And so what I want us to do this evening is uh, just simply go through the Bible and see if we can get some glimpses of what was provided for the Gentiles uh, during uh, this time period when um, people weren't Jews. What, what, if you're not a Jew, what happened? How were you saved? What were you supposed to do if you didn't have the law of Moses? Before we start looking at some scripture, let me remind you first of all that uh, Paul is very clear in Romans chapter 3 and verse 23 that all uh, have sinned, and that um, there's none of us who are righteous, as he says in verse 10 of the same chapter. And therefore, um, as he tells us in Romans 6 and verse 23, that the wages of sin is death, that means that all mankind, beginning in, with Adam and Eve, uh, are sinners, and that uh, all mankind, beginning with Adam and Eve, needed salvation. And so um, God being a long-suffering God, as Peter tells us, does not want anyone to perish, but all to come to repentance. There evidently was something that was presented uh, to the Gentile world. We're just not sure what it is, but as we go through our Bibles, perhaps we can get a glimpse of some parts of it. Uh, but let's begin by opening our Bibles at the very first book of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 4 and verse 4 where we see something that's very familiar to us, but I want to make sure we understand and appreciate the fact of what's going on here. In Genesis chapter 4 and verse 4, uh, we have the account of Abel and his brother Cain who presented sacrifices to the Lord. And verse 4 just simply says, And Abel he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and the fat thereof, and the Lord had respect unto uh, Abel and to his offering. And we know the rest of the story, how that he didn't like Cain's offering, and that caused Cain to be jealous, and he ended up committing the very first murder in the history of the world. Now, I want you to notice in this verse that although we have no guidelines whatsoever as far as what was supposed to be done by those who were the offspring of Adam, this is in the infancy of mankind here on this earth, but we can gather that from this particular episode that evidently that was a part of their religion and a part of their salvation. It involved sacrifice. And we also learn that the sacrifice had some guidelines associated with it. Uh, the Bible doesn't tell us about what Adam and Eve had to do as far as um, worshiping God. Uh, the Bible doesn't tell us if there were specific days they were supposed to worship God. The Bible doesn't tell us how that, what kind of mediator there was between them and God. All the Bible simply tells us in this particular case that evidently that God desires sacrifice from those who are going to follow Him, and here we have an example of it. And I think a good point that we can make right here is that 
no religion is worth anything if it doesn't involve sacrifice. And that's always been the case with God from here at the very beginning and certainly goes into our day and age. Though we don't make animal sacrifices, yet at the same time, God expects us, as Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 reminds us, that He expects us to at least be living sacrifices and willing to sacrifice our entire life to Him. Well, we see that point, and turn over a few pages, over to Genesis chapter 8. In Genesis chapter 8, we have the story, uh, well, it actually starts in Genesis chapter 6, of how that God was so upset with the world that He decided to destroy it. The only people he didn't destroy, of course, was Noah and his family. And after a period of being cooped up in the ark for a long period of time, they, the ark finally landed on dry land. And I want you to notice what happened as soon as Noah and his family got off the ark. And uh, Genesis chapter 8, beginning at verse 20. Verse 20 says, And Noah builded an altar unto the Lord, and took of every clean beast, and of every clean fowl, and offered burnt offerings unto the altar. And the Lord smelled a sweet Savior, and the Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground any more for man's sake, for the imagination of man's, man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I again smite any more every living thing as I have done. Now I want you to notice once again a couple things. Noah understood that when he got off the ark that he needed to worship God. We don't know what kind of guidelines Noah had, but we discovered that there was something that, he, that Noah at least thought that God wanted him to do. We won't see a command that this, this way. We were led to the, believe this command, when, that this might be a command when God told Noah to take on the ark um, both clean and unclean animals. But when Noah got off the ark... What did he do? He offered a sacrifice to God. He built an altar to God, and he offered clean animals. Now, these are the same, do these go by the same guidelines as um, the Mosaic law about what's clean or unclean? Don't know. The Bible just simply doesn't tell us. But Noah knew that there was something as a clean animal, and there's something as an unclean animal. And he understood that in order to be pleasing to God in his worship, as part of the salvation that God has extended to Noah, that God expected him to offer sacrifices in a certain kind of way. And we see the result. Because of this sacrifice, it was something that was very pleasing to God, and he made the pronouncement that he would never, ever destroy the world in the same way that he had destroyed it, even when man might be very, very evil. Now, now that we looked at that, we're building, we're building a process here. We understand that under, before the law of Moses ever came into effect, before there was something even known as Jew and Gentile, that God had some type of plan to save mankind, and there was some type of worship involved. We just simply don't know what it is because the Bible doesn't tell us. The Bible doesn't go into detail as far as the patriarchal age is concerned. Now, keep in mind, during the patriarchal age, the fathers were the heads of the family, and God oftentimes communicated directly with those families. But yet, as far as the structure of their worship, as far as special days they were supposed to keep, as far as, far as anything, as far as their salvation is concerned, the Bible really doesn't mention a whole lot about it. Now, turn to a book that we don't look at very often, but a book that we need to spend some time in, and that is the book of Job because of the things that are taught there. Now, I don't know this personally because I'm not a scholar, but other scholars tell me 
that the book of Job is probably the oldest book that we have in our Bibles, that it was probably written sometime before the flood, and therefore it, was be, it had been written before Genesis was written, because Genesis was written by Moses, even though Moses is talking about events that took place prior to the flood. But most people agree that the book of Job is talking about a time period that existed before the flood. Uh, Go through and do some research and you find animals mentioned and other things that lead us to believe this. But I want you to notice that here was a man who was not living under the law of Moses, a man who was not living under the Christian age, but instead was living in a time period that uh, chapter 1 and verse 1 of the book of Job could say this. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was perfect and upright and one that feared God and eschewed evil. This man was referred to as a God-fearer, one who feared God, and therefore he turned away from evil. In fact, um, a little bit later in chapter 1 and verse 8, we have the Lord saying unto Satan, "'Has thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth?' a perfect and upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil. Now, once again, we don't know what was a part of God's plan of salvation for Job, but evidently, as far as God is concerned, here was a man who was uh, not a Jew because Judaism hadn't been uh, given to us yet as far as God's commandment on Mount Sinai. But yet, here was a man that God referred to as an upright man, And the reason why he's referred to as an upright man and a perfect man is because he is one who feared God and did not tolerate evil. And I want you to notice something else that goes on in this particular verse. If you um, look at verse 5 of chapter 1, notice that something that was evidently a part of Job's plan as far as what God had commanded him to do as far as his worship was concerned and as far as redemption was concerned before the law of Moses and one of the reasons why God called him a perfect and upright man. Verse 5 says, And it was so when the days of the feasting were gone about that Job sent and sanctified them and rose up early in the morning and offered burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Now here we see something that um, makes us ponder the fact that here we have the earlier, earliest recording uh, of, a, of something that was written about a man and about his life And God refers to him as being one who feared God and was perfect and upright. And here is a man who is offering sacrifices to God for the purpose of redemption. His children, he was worried about them, as oftentimes we do worry about our children. And his children were evidently involved in some uh, some feasting and whatnot. And just to make sure that they had not... If they had done something wrong, he was going to take care of their situation. Uh, He offered sacrifices for every one of his sons and his daughters, every one of his children, because he was concerned that they may have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Now, once again, this is before there was such a thing as Jew and Gentile, but yet evidently there was something going on where God could refer to um, Job as being a perfect and upright man. That sounds like a safe man to me. 
And once again, there were sacrifices involved. But that's all the Bible tells us. We don't know a whole lot more about what was involved in his religion. Don't know what the plan of salvation was, how it worked. But there was something going on there. Now, turn back to the book of Genesis, to Genesis chapter 14. And you get to chapter 14, and we're introduced to something else that is puzzling. But yet, once again, it gives us some insight that there's a whole lot more going on at this time than the Bible ever tells us about. Because in Genesis chapter 14, and verse 18, we're introduced to somebody, kind of just appears on the scene and disappears from the scene, but yet, I want you to notice what God refers to this person has, as through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit given to Moses. This is, of course, during the time period of Abraham. This was during the patriarchal age. The Bible doesn't tell us about worship or anything concerning the patriarchal age other than their sacrifices. Until now, we're given some more information. Verse 18 says, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. What? There was a priesthood during the patriarchal age? There was some type of system set up as far as there being an intermediator between God and man, and he's referred to as a priest. Now keep in mind that the law of Moses hadn't been instituted yet. There's no tribe of Levi. But yet there was someone, and of course the Bible uses him as an example, how one could be a king and both a priest, and refers to him, the writer of Hebrews refers to him as the same way Jesus Christ is both our king and our priest, or high priest. But here we're using this to make us understand that evidently during the patriarchal age that there was some type of priesthood. We don't know what was required of that priesthood. We don't know if it had to be from a certain area. We don't know if God just arbitrarily picked these people to be priests. We don't know what, what anything about it. We don't know what all their duties and functions were. We do know that Abraham will pay tithes to this priest or give 10% of his income. But my point is there's something going on here, and we don't know what's going on other than the fact that there's a man, and he was a priest, and he lived long before Moses instituted the law of Moses, or the first covenant. So kind of keep that in mind. Now, turn over to Genesis chapter 20. We have something interesting going on here, and I don't want to get bogged down into details and, and, and discuss what's going on more than just simply the fact there's something that's interesting here. Now, beginning at verse 1 of, of chapter 20 of Genesis, it says this, And Abraham journeyed from thence toward the south country, and dwelled between Kadesh and Shur, and sojourning in Jerah. And Abraham said of Sarah his wife, She is my sister. And Abimelech the king of Jerah sent and took Sarah. Now keep in mind that this is a man who is now living in the land of Canaan. This was a king who lived in the land of Canaan by the name of Abimelech. This man was not considered a Hebrew. He was not a descendant of Abraham. This man was not a Jew. This was a man who was living in the land of Canaan at this time. And Abraham did something he shouldn't do. He lied. And so um, this king thought that Sarah was fair game to add to his harem. 
But now notice what happens in verse 3, and this is very telling. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, thou art but a dead man, for the woman thou hast taken, for she is a man's wife. But Abimelech had not come near her and said, Lord, wilt thou slay also a righteous nation? Now, did you catch that? Here's a man that God appeared to. Here's a man that the man referred to God as being Lord. And then he describes in his defense, don't, don't destroy us, Father. Don't destroy us, Lord, because we're a righteous nation. Now, wait a minute. You mean to tell me that unless he was lying, God didn't correct him, that when Abraham was on the face of this earth and he was the friend of God, and he was the one from whom all the nations were going to be blessed, that there was a king by the name of Abimelech, that God appeared to him and warned him about the situation. This man refers to him as being Lord, and he refers to his nation as being a righteous nation. I find that very interesting. There was something going on among the people of the world at that time that had nothing to do with Abraham other than they came together and they met. And he took Abraham's wife because he was told something that wasn't true. But God warned him. He responded to God and even made the point that God, please don't punish us because we are a righteous nation. And then he goes on and declares uh, how that he wants to be innocent of the things that he has done and how he's going to restore his wife uh, back to um, Abraham. And once again, I think it's significant that this particular point that there was something going on. We don't know what it was. We don't know what made his nation a righteous nation. We don't know other than the fact that during the patriarchal age that God spoke directly to the heads of families. And in the same way that God has spoken to Abraham, God speaks to this king by the name of Abimelech. Just very, very interesting stuff. Well, turn over to the book of Proverbs, the very last proverb. Proverb 31. And I want you to notice something that's not so significant as the things that are written in that very last proverb, but who wrote this particular proverb? Proverbs 31, the very last proverb that's in the book of Proverbs, which is an inspired book. There's no doubt about that. The Jews held it as being a part of the canon of the Bible for, for thousands of years. But the very last proverb, and keep in mind that all the proverbs weren't written by Solomon. There were several who wrote proverbs, including Moses, or including um, others. But here in this particular proverb, notice what the first verse says. The words of King Lemuel, the prophecy that his mother taught him. Hmm. Who's King Lemuel? We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. We have no clue who this guy is. But we know this, that his words are important enough, even though he evidently wasn't a king of Israel because he's not part of the history of the, of the nation of Israel. This is a king that lived at another time. But his words are so important, they've been added to the inspired word of God. And another thing I find interesting here is that the things that he is writing about are things that was the prophecy that his mother taught him. Now, what's going on there? 
I don't have a clue. I can't answer that. But evidently we have a king who is not a part of God's nation. This man, uh, if he lived during the time of the law of Moses, was outside the realm of the law of Moses, he certainly wasn't a part of the nation of Israel because he's not mentioned there with Saul or David or Solomon or any of them. He evidently was not living during the time period that, uh, or he might have been, but there's no record of him during this time period that the kings of Israel were in existence. He may have been, but it doesn't tell us his nation, but it tells us that here is a man that worshiped God and believed in God and gave us advice even in this day and age to follow. And he got this advice originally from his mother through a prophecy. So once again, there's something going on here. Now, turn over to the book of 2 Kings, 2 Kings chapter 5. In 2 Kings chapter 5, we have the story of Naaman. And I think most of us are familiar with the story of Naaman. Now, he was a man who was uh, captain of the host of the king of Syria. Uh, He had a lot of things going for him, but he had one big problem, and that is he had leprosy. And there was an Israelite maiden who was one of his servants who was very distressed that this man had leprosy. And she hooked him up with one of the prophets that lived in the land of Palestine. And you know the story. He went to go see uh, Elisha. And Elisha told him to go dip in the Jordan River seven times. And of course at first he refused, but then he finally uh, redeemed himself and he was made... Um, clean because he obeyed the command of the prophet that was commanded, of course, by God. And I want you to notice um, what happens here in this particular text. Let me find my verse here. Okay, verse 15 is where I want to start. Verse 15, And he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and came and stood before him and said, Behold now, I know... He didn't say, I think. He didn't say, I guess. Behold, now I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. Now, therefore, I pray thee, take a blessing of thy servant. But he said, As the Lord liveth before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he he urged him to take it, but he refused. Now listen to what happens in verse 17. And Naaman said, Shall there not then, I pray thee, be given to thy servants two mules, burdens of earth? For thy servants will henceforth offer neither burnt offerings nor sacrifices unto, unto other gods, but unto the Lord. Now, I don't know about you, but here is a man that sounds converted to me. And he said that he understood that there was no other God but the one God. And he understood that now that he believed in this God that it would involve some sacrifice. And he was going about it in the wrong way evidently because he was trying to give stuff to Elisha. But my point I want you to understand is Elisha was living during the time of the Mosaic Law. And the thing that's not mentioned in this particular verse or verses is that after Naaman understood that there was only one God, that he understood that it involved sacrifice, Why didn't Elisha say, well, you know what? You need to become a Jew. You need to be proselyted. If you really want to be pleasing to God, if you really know that there's only one God and you want to worship Him in some way, well, you need to become a Jew. I gather from this, and maybe I'm stretching it too far here, but if there was a necessity for him to become a Jew in order to be saved, even if that meant being a Jewish proselyte, which was something people did. They didn't have to, evidently, but something people did, uh, that... Elisha would have told him. 
But Elijah doesn't tell him anything about that. He basically tells him to go home. Point simply this is that evidently there was not a need for this God-fear who believed in God now to change anything that he was doing as far as the Mosaic law was concerned because, you see, he was not a Jew. He was a Gentile. Now, as you start moving through the rest of the Old Testament, and we don't have time to look at everything, but you get to um, the minor prophets, and they're called minor prophets because they are so small, and we don't have too many lessons uh, that we do from the minor prophets. But there is a minor prophet by the name of Obadiah. And um, I ain't going to turn to it because there's not anything I really want to read there. I just want to make sure that we understand that the whole point of the book of Obadiah was an address to the Edomites. Now, the Edomites weren't Jews. The Edomites were descendants of the Jews going all the way back to Esau. But they were not Jews. They were not under the law of Moses. But yet, Obadiah writes a, a blazing letter to them, a prophecy about them, because they were not doing what God wanted them to do. Wait a minute, they weren't Jews. Why would it be even a point if they were under the Mosaic law? that If they couldn't be saved, then what's the whole point of this letter? Another uh, interesting minor prophet is Jonah. We all know the story of Jonah, how that he was supposed to go preach, but he decided to run away, and he ended up in the the belly of a, of, a, of a large fish. And where was he going? Where was he supposed to be preaching? Was he going to see his Jewish brothers and sisters who needed to repent? No, he went to see a bunch of Gentiles there in the city of Nineveh. He went from one end of the city to the other city, repent, telling the people in the Nineveh that they needed to repent. God says, you need to repent. Well, wait a minute, Jonah, we're not Jews, we're Gentiles. What's the whole point of this? Well, evidently, although the, God, the Bible doesn't tell us, there was something going on there whereby they needed to repent or else they were going to run into trouble with God. There was something going on that the Bible doesn't tell us. Well, Jim, you've said a lot tonight, but you really hadn't told us anything. Well, all I can tell you is what the Bible says, and it's my... I, thought is that there was a whole lot going on behind the scenes that we don't know about as far as the salvation of the Gentiles were concerned. God in his perfect wisdom didn't tell, didn't tell us because evidently we don't need to know it. It has no effect on us living in this particular day and age because of the fact that we now live in the Christian age and as we move into um, the New Testament and we see the very first Gentile that the gospel is preached to it points out the fact that everything has changed now. There was Jews and there were Gentiles before, and we obviously have a plan of salvation for the Jews. The Bible doesn't tell us what the plan of salvation for the Gentiles was, but once Christ came, remember what Peter told Cornelius there in Acts 10, beginning at verse 34? He says, I perceive that God is no respecter of persons. In other words, it doesn't matter who you are now. Here is the way that you're supposed to be saved. And, we, of course, we know that after Peter talked to Cornelius and his household, they responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ and became Christians. Well, the only other light that I can throw on this is when you get to the book of Romans. And turn over to Romans chapter 2. 
Paul, as he begins the book of Romans, he's declaring, first of all, that the Gentile world is without excuse. He later on tells us that the Jewish world is without excuse. But he begins with the Gentile world because he's writing to the Gentile world. He's writing to Rome. And he's, of course, addressed the letter to the church at Rome, but they are living in the midst of a Gentile world. This was not the Jewish world. This was the Gentile world. And I want you to notice what he tells them in chapter 2 and verse 14. He says, For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are a law unto themselves. Well, there's a point there, and we can go and read some more, but the point is that they uh, do have a law. It may not be the law of Moses, but they're under some kind of law. Well, what is that particular law? We'll turn all the way back over to chapter 1, and we're given a glimpse of that. Beginning in chapter 1 and verse 16, notice what the Apostle Paul says. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now he's saying now that the gospel is for both groups of people, both the Jews and the Greek or the Gentiles. And then he says in verse 17, For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Evidently, it's always been God's plan that our religion and our salvation is based upon faith. Now he goes on and and. In verse 18, and points out more about this. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold, to, hold the truth of in unrighteousness. And then he goes in verse 20, and he said, Well, just go verse 19, Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath shown it unto them. Now he's talking about the Gentile world now. For the invisible things of him from the creation... Of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. In other words, the Gentile world on the judgment day can't stand before God and say, Hey, where's our plan of salvation? Hey, we didn't know about you. Hey, this is not fair. You didn't give us any type of thing that we're supposed to do. All you did was do that Jewish thing. We had nothing to do with that. The text says that they're out of excuse without excuse now the pagan world had gotten bad because of this very reason in verse 21 because that talking about their without excuse when they knew God there was a time the Gentile world definitely knew God they glorified him not as God neither were they thankful but in but became vain in their imaginations and their foolish hearts were darkened professing themselves to be wise they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. There's where paganism came from. But Paul's point is, at one time in the Gentile world, they had a law. It wasn't the law of Moses, but they had a law that God expected them to they were going to be just, that they were going to live by faith. 
It's always been the case, as it says in the text, from faith unto faith, that the just shall live by faith. And so once again, maybe you haven't learned anything new. Maybe I didn't help answer the question. But I can only tell you what the Bible says. And there was something going on, something that people understood that sacrifices were involved, that there were other nations who were not Jewish nations that could be referred to as righteous nations. There were other kings that we don't even have a record of who they were, but they were able to write things that were good enough to be placed in our Bible. There were situations in which God sent preachers to talk to other nations who were not Jewish nations. There was some type of priesthood involved, even though we don't know anything about it because we have Melchizedek. And also, I didn't mention of it because it just now popped into my head, but you remember that guy by the name of Moses? He ended up marrying a girl. The girl wasn't a... Wasn't a Jew. She was a Midianite. You know what her father's job was? He was a priest of God. Now, how did that work? Moses, who would be the one who would go on top of Mount Sinai and receive the law from God and would come down and establish a priesthood, his father-in-law already was a priest. Now, what's that all about? Uh, The Bible doesn't tell us. But he was a priest, and he was one of God's priests. According to what law? I don't know. But he was still a priest. My point is, there was a whole lot going on there uh, that we don't know about. But I believe with my, all my heart that God provided a means of salvation, even during the time of the law of Moses. To people who were not Jews, God does not want to see anyone perish, but wants to see all to come to repentance. But we can spend a lot of time talking about what might have been, talking about what the situation might have been involved and how it was all set up. But as we close tonight, I want us to go back to the conversion of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10 and close with verses 34 and 35 because it all changed then. From here on out, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or if you're a Gentile. If you want to be saved, if you want to go to heaven, then you need to listen to the words of Peter when he was talking to the Gentile Cornelius. Verse 34, Then Peter opened his mouth and said, Of a truth I perceive that God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted of him. And then he goes on and, of course, teaches Cornelius about God. And teaches him about the Son of God. And of course, verse 47 says, Can any man forbid water that these should be baptized, which have received the Holy Ghost as as well as we? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. In other words, now if you're a Jew or a Gentile, if you want to be saved, you need to obey the same command that Peter told Cornelius, that very first Gentile. I hope that helps with the question that was asked. I hope all of us learned some new things tonight. And um, just keep those questions coming in. If you have a need tonight in order to become a Christian, I'll tell you the same thing that Peter told Cornelius. You need to repent, predicate it upon your uh, faith, be willing to confess the name of Jesus Christ, and be baptized for the remission of your sins. But if you have some other need this evening, we want you to come as together we stand and sing.